Welcome along to the Property Academy Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Knight. And I'm Andrew Nichols. And today on the show, we're talking about crashing the housing market on purpose. <laughs> and actually, we're going to use that, that sound effect to the next episode as well, but I'll tell you about that at the end. Now, we don't like to get too political on this show, <laughs> but it's episode number 700, so I thought, woohoo, let's sit our hair down, Andrew, <laughs> and we're going to be talking about it. Because uh, we see, I think we see it two episodes ago during the Reserve Bank one about the stuff articles. I don't know why I do it to myself. Uh, no, I know, We're this a is sucker the, for pain. This is the one that I was talking about the comments, me reading in the comments section and just getting myself all in a tiz on the airplane. <laughs> He's got himself all worked up. And I'll just tell you about it. It was a writer saying, maybe we should crash the housing market, cause house prices to go down significantly on purpose to try and improve access. And this was written by a lady called Jade Cake, I think it is, architect based up in Northland. And look, I'm glad she's an architect to houses rather than policy because <laughs> the mixture of policy suggestions, honestly, it makes me just want to cry. It actually does. I just wondered whether, like, was this written purely just to get some, was it clickbait? We've been trolled. Was, We've uh, been trolled, <laughs> Andrew. <laughs> so a couple of policy prescriptions that she suggested in here. First of all, limit the number of properties that any one person can own. Tax housing even more and then provide rentals solely through the state or some sort of managed fund, so, but primarily doing it through big organisations. And if you want to invest in housing, hey, you've got to do it through a managed fund rather than purchasing it directly. But a big undercurrent is providing it all through the state. So look, we're going to deconstruct this today and just walk you through, because I know, guys, I know you hear it. You're out at your barbecue. Oh, Bazza, he's come along. Bazza wants to tell you why people should only be able to own one house, or oh, Bazza <laughs> wants to tell you about how the state should do everything. I just want to arm you guys so that you know the reasons why that that's probably impractical. Well, and actually, at the at the Wellington podcast dinner, which was last night, I, don't, I know it's not last night today, but uh, it was last night, today that we were still feeling sick. Successful property investor can't work his calendar. That that should be the stuff headline. It's just this man flu has really gone to me. I was sat next to this really nice couple and halfway through the night she said, it's just really nice to talk to someone who doesn't instantly want to crucify you for being a property investor. Was that Becky? Yes, 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 it was. Uh, and, <laughs> You've got no idea. <laughs> yeah, and she, she, the fact that there, there wasn't going to be a public lynching when she announced that she was a property investor, she quite liked. <laughs> yeah, I actually remember that as well, talking to them about that. Now, one of the big issues that I've got with this, and we've got five arguments we're going to walk <laughs> you through, team. The first one is that for me, a lot of the time, the problems when somebody's arguing in this way are really poorly defined and they get mixed in with one another. I'm not suggesting that the problems aren't legitimate, Andrew's going to do that in a second, (laughs) Um, but they often get interwoven unnecessarily. So the question is, is the problem that some first home buyers aren't able to buy, because we know first home buyers do buy houses, but is the issue that some people aren't able to buy first homes, or is the issue that we've got people living in cars and motels? Now look, Here's the thing, the fact that we've got people who require emergency housing absolutely is an issue which we're going to talk about in a second. But we've got to make sure that when we're talking with these people, well, what's the issue we're talking about? And we've got to separate those out because those are two separate issues. Because we can solve the problem around first-home buyers not being able to access the market in one way, 
while helping out those first home buyers, we're going to need a different way to help out people who are currently in emergency housing. We're going to need different policy prescriptions and we need to solve those two independently. So my first thing when you're dealing with people talking about this, always separate out the issues. Cool. So we've got an issue with first home buyers. We've got an issue with emergency housing. Let's talk about the policy prescriptions we're going to introduce to solve either of those. That's going to allow you to have a much better and clear-eyed discussion. Andrew, what's the next thing that you've picked up? So my next argument is around the price and that the issue doesn't actually exist. So yes, house prices are high, but that's not necessarily an issue. How is that an issue? Well, why isn't it an issue? Well, because I think the problem is that everyone is using this percent of this multiplier of income to say a house should be X number of times my pay which is such a weak measure of where a house value should actually land. It's, I always liken it to using the bathroom scales to figure out if you're fit or not. So you can't jump on the scales and go, oh yeah, okay, 80, 80 kgs, I'm fit or I'm not fit. Working out that it costs 10 times your income to own a house, that's actually such a weak measure. So let's look at first-time buyers because that is the one that gets all the press because these poor first-time buyers that want and have a right to buy a house, let's see if they're actually buying houses now. CoreLogic released some data, and it goes back from 2016. So the percentage of first-time buyers in the market that are buying properties, transacting houses, are actually higher than they've ever been. So it's from 20% to they now make up 24% of the market. Now let's go back to that income side of thing again. So wait, let me just get this straight. So back in 2016... One in five houses that were bought were bought by a first-home buyer. You're saying today it's one in four houses. Absolutely. Now, the next part of it is, okay, we use this multiplier of income to figure out whether or not a house is affordable for us. Well, actually, affordability comes down to servicing. And so we've got some data which shows the percentage of your weekly income, which you have to use to service a 90% mortgage. Now, this goes back to 2005, and at that time, it was around 40% of your income that would be required to service a mortgage at 90%. It's been trending downwards, and it's now around that 31% mark, 31, 32, it's hard to tell from this graph. So it is- Don't criticise my graph, so, so, Sorry. And actually, at one stage, back in 2008, it was at 55%. So it is now cheaper- from a percentage of your income perspective to pay a mortgage, even if the house price is higher. So I don't buy into that argument at all. Yeah, the big issue really is that people see the high house prices, but that's not the measure of affordability. Correct. The price of a house doesn't impact whether it's affordable or not. What impacts it, that comes down to two things. First of all, the deposit side is, can I pull the deposit together? That is based on First of all, what the price of the house is, but also lending restrictions around how much of a deposit is actually being required, which of course we talked about two episodes ago. And then the servicing side, which we're saying, well, with incomes increasing and with the price of properties that first-time buyers are actually paying, it's been pretty steady. But actually, the marker of this in the end of the day is are first-time buyers actually purchasing homes? And the answer is yes, and yeah. I've been buying more homes consistently, yep. making up a higher proportion of the market. That tells you whether it's affordable or not. The other thing that I want to talk about, though, which is the really sad side, is 
people living in cars and substandard yes. accommodation, and that's such a problem that we've got here in the housing market and here in New Zealand. But can I tell you what, guys, when, when I think about this just logically, the fact is that getting people out of hotels and motels and moving them into accommodation really isn't an issue for private investors. It's really a, an issue or a problem with the state not providing enough houses. If these people don't have the incomes to be able to do it, it's not, hey, let's decrease house prices and that will magically de- decrease rents because we'd all still have the mortgages that we've got, right? Just because house prices half doesn't mean that my $600,000 mortgage no. is any less. In fact, you know that's going to lock in the, the, the amount of rent that I need to charge. So decreasing house prices isn't going to necessarily decrease rents, especially if mortgages are already locked in. And if of course, if house values decrease, I can't sell my house. If my house is now worth 400 grand and my mortgage is 600 grand, I've got to hold on to that house because I can't sell it because I'm going to crystallize my loss and I'm going to have 200k worth of debt here. So I've got to hold on to it. Now, I'm not able to decrease my rent in that case. So crashing the housing market's not going to solve that. But what would solve it is building more state houses. Now, the fact that we don't have enough state houses probably tells you something about whether the state is actually equipped in order to be able to build enough houses to be able to help everybody out. And so I just think that crashing the housing market and these kinds of policy prescriptions aren't really going to help these people. What's going to help these people is if we can increase their incomes and if we can get them into some state houses. But anyway, these were... (laughs) I've got, I could start, sit here talking about this all day, but we'll continue on. My other thing is that I don't think these solutions, limiting the number of properties that people can own, would actually cure the illness. I don't think the medicine cures the illness. I don't think the proposed solution really solves the problem. And I'm specifically here talking about the state owning everything. And what I mean by that is I don't think it's very efficient for the government to own every house and every rental property and get it out there. Why is that? Well, it would take so much capital to buy up every house. It would take so much of the government's money to build all of these houses. We need the private market in there because what would happen? What happens if the government tries to own every house in New Zealand and then rent it out? Well, how do we do that and have money for healthcare? How do we have money for that and have money for education? How do we have money for state housing and have enough parks and green space and sort out our emissions for climate change? The trouble is we can't have the government doing everything because they don't have the money to do it. And how would they get the money to do that? Well, we'd have to put in some more taxes in order to be able to do that. Here's the thing, guys. If the private sector is able to deploy its capital, if you and I can deploy the money we've got to be able to privately provide some rentals for people who need them, then that's going to be a good thing. It means the government doesn't have to do it. It means the government can take that money that it's got and put it towards healthcare. It means it can take the money it's got and put it towards education. And that's going to be a much more efficient way of the government using its funds rather than providing rental properties when someone else could do that, where Andrew could do it or I could do it or you could do that. And that's such a beautiful thing that we're able to do. And the other thing is I come back to it. If the government is going to provide rental properties for people, Who should they do it for? Well, it should be targeted to those people living in motels. And what does it tell you about any one organisation's ability to provide a lot of housing very quickly if we unfortunately have to put people up in motels right now? It's a real problem, guys. That's where we need to be focusing central government attention, not providing houses for every renter who needs it when you or I could do it. Anyway, enough about that because we really could be here. Boy, we we could be here all day. But talk to us about your next thing that you're picking up here, Andrew. Look, rising prices 
are actually a good thing. They're not a bad thing. Let's think about the fact that right now, construction is probably the jewel in the crown of the New Zealand economy. That is what's keeping things moving right now. And I, there's never been so many new developers into the market, which, you know, and whether or not that's a good thing, I don't know. But you're getting a whole lot of competition at the moment because people are able to sell things at a good price very quickly. And we want that. We need housing stock. We need people to go out there and be building more houses. Who the hell do you think is going to be building new properties if house prices suddenly decline? No one's going to want to do that because their margins get squeezed. It's just not worth it for them. You're not going to have any more development if house prices all of a sudden drop. And look, the other part is that prices being set by the market is the fairest way of being able to do something. If you have a situation where all of a sudden you've got fixed prices set, you can only sell a property for a particular amount that you bought it for times, you know, 3% a year, let's say, because some bureaucrat in Wellington has, has figured out that, well, that's the maximum price that you can sell it for. Well, then who decides who gets the property? If there's 20 people wanting that property, you've got an immediate shortage and this will lead to a black market. So let's take an example where producer Dave wants to sell his house and the market amount that he can sell for is 500000 Well, Ed and I are both wanting to buy that property. Well, then all I'll do is I'll go to producer Dave and I'll say, hey, Dave, I'll give you an envelope with $10,000 cash if you take my offer. And then Ed's the one that ends up missing out because I was sneaky and went behind the scenes. And this is what we do tend to see anytime there's a maximum price set on a market where the price that you're allowed to sell out is lower than people actually are willing to pay. You start to see those effects coming in. And look, the last thing I want to say is like, if we limited people to only be able to buy one house, so your owner occupy, that solution in my view would do more harm than good because what investors would ever sell? So if we crash the housing market, prices go down, and we say investors are no longer allowed to buy any more properties and everybody's only allowed to own the properties they've already got or one property per person. Why would anybody sell? Nobody would ever sell a property if they knew they couldn't buy it back. So if Andrew's sitting here with his 40 properties, people say, you're not allowed to buy any more and you're allowed a maximum of one. Well, he would never sell it. He'd never sell a single property, even if it was a terrible investment, even if it was under-rented, even if it had nobody in it and if owner-occupied want it. Because if he sold it, he'd never be able to get it back. Because the maximum means that he'd have to sell all of his properties down to he's got zero before he can buy the next property. That would just provide such issues in terms of freezing the market, in terms of nobody being able to want to sell it. And what, guys, what's our issue here? We've talked about it on the show. The issue currently in the market is that we don't have enough listings. Listings are at a record low, about 85 to 80% below what they historically have been. We need to ensure that there aren't any policies that discourage people listing their properties because we need a buoyant market. And what I mean by that is a market where there are lots of properties being out there, lots of people listing their properties. But these sorts of policies do so much more harm than good because they lock up the market where people wouldn't want to sell their houses. If you decrease market prices and all of a sudden my house is worth less than my mortgage, how can I ever sell it? There's no way I can sell it. That's the issue with Brightline as well. If you make it so that I've got to hold this property for 10 years, then even if I need to sell it, I won't sell it. And if you have fewer listings on the market, it's not just that we've got a lack of supply, we don't have enough houses, but we don't have enough houses on the market, which pushes up market prices. It's so obvious. 
and look, I think the main thing here is we've got to remember this is a terrible way of solving an issue. And really, I think the major issue here is we've got people living in motels. The housing affordability, in my mind, is not actually a problem. People living in hotels and in their car, that is a real issue. And the state needs to step up and deal with this rather than pass the blame to property investors, for example, and say, well, actually, it's because they, they keep stealing this property and driving property prices up. That's rubbish. You don't want to be in a situation where in an attempt to solve one problem, you create a much bigger one. Because the issue here is at the moment, we're regulating and trying to tax ourselves to prosperity. You cannot do that. We're only going to be able to build our way out. And if people don't have enough money, we need to not make things cheaper, but we need to increase wages and encourage innovation so that there's more money to be able to purchase things. And again, I think that the government needs to be dealing with the housing crisis that is the emergency housing. House prices, that's not an emergency. Now, Andrew, look, I realise we've got a bit religious here, but I think since it's our special 700th episode, we'll probably allow ourselves to do that. One thing I want to say is, tomorrow is Friday the 13th. We've got a fantastic episode for you. We're going to be talking about murder houses. So if there is a crime within my property, how does it impact its value and for how long? So make sure you tune in for tomorrow because it is going to be a really cool episode. And let's wrap it up there, but don't forget to rate review and subscribe to the podcast really does help us get the message out to more people and make sure you tune in for our webinar 17th of August at 7pm that's next Tuesday we're going to talk about how to get more money out of the bank so that you're able to go and invest in more properties I'm going to drop a link for that in the show notes so tap or swipe over the cover art it'll be in there or just go to oberspartners.co.nz you'll be able to sign up for listening to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Emmett Knight. And I'm Andrew Nichol. And we're going to be back again tomorrow with even more daily strategies, tactics and insights to help you get the most out of the New Zealand property market. Until next time.